joining us. Um, I can I can officially say Chag Urim Sameach, Happy Hanukkah, since we are in the week of Hanukkah. It also means that we can um, we can now officially buy the donuts, the sufganiot. I always feel like, oh, okay, there's going to be a month of donuts. So when does the month of donuts begin? The Sunday, maybe the Monday leading into Hanukkah. So hopefully uh, <laughs> we can max out that time uh, over there for, for, for our kids' sake, at least. So I've got some pickups to do today. Uh, but we, we are excited to engage in um, cultivating courage for righteous action. We put together this plan like six months ago. It was like, whoa, Hanukkah, it's a long time away, but we put it in place. And we're glad to be here. Uh, we're glad to be here. Rabbi Lisa Goldstein is a teacher and facilitator with almost 25 years of executive experience. For many years, she was the director of the Hillel of San Diego, uh, where she created vibrant, welcoming communities for all kinds of college students. More recently, she led the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, a global leader of Jewish mindfulness and spiritual practices. She has taught Jewish mindfulness, meditation, prayer, and spiritual practice in various contexts for 20 years. On a personal note, I knew Rabbi Lisa Goldstein when I was a college student on the Hillel board. I knew her when I was a rabbinical student. We went to do a service learning mission in Senegal. Um, and from her work at IJS, um, the uh, Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and from other learning circles and beyond. And we hope to have many opportunities to learn from her here at VBM. Uh, and today, which is uh, the first of many to come. So uh, Hanukkah, Cultivating Courage for Righteous Action. Rabbi Lisa Goldstein, take it away. Thank you, Shmuley. Thank you, thank you. Um, I just want to put, say, one other point of connection with Shmuley that, um, you know, I, I so admire the, the leadership that you provide in so many areas in of um, justice and speaking out for the vulnerable and those who don't have the wherewithal to... Um, the power, the, the resources to be able to, um, to like they need a good ally and, and friend and, um, and that that's also true in the fostering world, which is also something that um, we have in common that um, my husband and I are foster parents <clears throat> and um, we really admire the work that Shmuley does in many times being a foster parent and really taking care of those most vulnerable members of our society who really need strong, loving adults to stand up for them. So it's a great privilege to be part of this community and to meet all of you. Um, so, um, so here's what I'd like to do. Um, so first of all, um, I wanna just have us arrive a little bit. We, um, we're usually constantly running and then we come onto a Zoom meeting and, um, this medium is not known for its quality of presence. And I really wanna invite us into a quality of presence so that we can really be together and learn together. And then I'm gonna tell you a little bit about some of the work that I've been doing around resilience. And then I'm gonna jump in specifically to courage because I think courage is one of the attributes that can help us be resilient uh, when things get really hard. So, um, but to start off, um, what I'd like to do is first of all, um, to invite those of you who have your video cameras off to maybe turn them on, like if there's a good reason for them to be off, that's fine. But um, it's just, it's so much nicer to see people's beautiful faces. Um, so if you're comfortable turning on, on your video, I would appreciate that. Um, and, um, and maybe start just by um, 
look, taking a look at the other faces in the in the squares, um, and maybe like looking at someone that you really like and smiling at them, or maybe someone that you would like to meet and maybe smiling at them. And just remember, someone's quite likely smiling at you too. So really feeling that even though we're not in the same room, that we can feel each other's positive energy. Um, and then I want to invite you to just like feel your where your feet are on the floor and feel the chair or the sofa underneath you. And just take a moment to notice like what's your mood right now? Whatever it is is fine. Just but just noticing what it is that you're bringing into the session today. It's just sort of, you know, it's almost Hanukkah. It's hard to believe. So and then taking in a deep breath, like breathing in. <sighs> and then feeling back into your feet one more time. And then looking at one more person and smiling at them again to say hello and welcome. <laughs> All right. So, um, so I've actually been thinking about resilience since before the, um, the pandemic began, interestingly enough. I was sort of thinking about it in the context of climate change, of the climate crisis, and really thinking that, um, you know, we, we human beings are sort of standing at these crossroads um, where we um, need to make some good decisions and thinking about like, how, how, how are we going to do this? How is it that we are going to um, nourish ourselves and stay, um, like help ourselves, like not get totally thrown off track when difficult things happen. Um, and then the pandemic hit and was like, okay, we get to practice some of, um, some of this. And the way that I was thinking about it is that um, looking at five different Jewish qualities that we can practice, that even if we're not feeling them organically, that there are little things that we can do to practice having this be part of the way that we see the world. So the five qualities that I've really been thinking about are uh, joy, gratitude, courage, connection, and trust. So um, I really feel like, um, I mean, that's not like that list does not come from Mount Sinai. It's not a definitive list. But these are things, these are qualities that I have found in my life to be very helpful in helping me stay grounded and open. And, um, I'm, and, and Judaism has a lot to say about these different qualities. So joy, gratitude, connection, courage, and trust. And so we can look at each one of these and see, like, what do the texts say about them? What are the obstacles to them? What are they actually? What are the practices associated with them? And so um, what I thought I would do today is to introduce um, a beautiful text that I really love. I'll tell you a little bit about how I found it because it's kind of a funny story too, um, about courage. And um, we can go through it and um, I'll share my commentary on it. And then uh, we can talk about it and then come away with some specific practices that might help us be more, more courageous at a time of darkness. How can we add our light into the world? So, um, so the text that we're gonna look at 
is by um, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. Um, Levi Yitzchak was um, in the third generation of the Hasidic masters. So his teacher was the Magid of Mezrich, um, and his teacher was the Baal Shem Tov, who started the whole Hasidic movement. And Levi Yitzchak lived between like 1740 to 1810, sort of in that range. Um, before I studied any of his work, I sort of knew some stories about him. I used to call him the Chutzpahdicker Rebbe um, because he had this way of um, just standing up for the Jews in the face of anything. So I'll just give you an example. Um, a story that's told about Levi Yitzchak was that um, once Yom Kippur fell on Shabbat and um, so Levi Yitzchak observed, you know, listen, God, you know, you're going to be sealing us all into the book of life, but you can't actually seal us in the book of life because it's, it's like, it's Shabbos. You're not allowed to do that kind. That's malacha. Like you're not allowed to do that kind of work. So the only time that you can is if you write us for blessing in the book of life, it's pikuach nefesh, it's saving a life. So therefore God, you have to sign us all into the book of life. So that was sort of, that's sort of a typical Levi Yitzchakism where he, um, he was really a compassionate man and he really loved the Jews. So, um, okay, so I'm gonna share my screen. Um, so that we can take a look at this text. Okay, can you all see that? Okay, I'm giving you the Hebrew, but we're not gonna look at the Hebrew. Yeah, make it bigger. Okay, hold on one moment. Um, let's do this. Okay, is that better? All right. So, um, so we're going to go through this a little bit, and I'm um, and I'll stop at different points, and I'll I'll want to hear from you too what you think about this. So, so he starts off. This is from his book Kedushat Levi. It's a commentary on the Torah portion of Yitro, which is um, about the giving of Torah. Um, and I actually just will tell you a little bit about how I came to this text. I was sitting in on a shiur that Rabbi Art Green was giving all about revelation leading up to Shavuot. And so of course we're reading Yitro because that's about the giving of Torah. And he's there's this point that Art was making and then he sort of came to this section. He's like, you know what? This is about courage. We're going to skip over it. We're going to go on to something else. And I was like, courage? I want to take a look at that afterwards. So this is the portion, this is the section, and I just think, I think it's pretty marvelous. So he starts off saying, we know the sages saying that at the giving of the Torah, God appeared to the Israelites as an old man. And at the time of the Exodus, God appeared to them as a young man. Okay, so what is he talking about here? So he is referring to a passage in the Midrash that says that um, the Israelites perceived God differently at different times of their whole journey in the desert. So that when they were um, approaching the, the sea and they're terrified because the Egyptians are coming after them, that they perceived God as a young man, as a young man, because you know you want some a strong warrior to protect you from your enemy who's coming up behind. But 
at, um, at Mount Sinai, when they received the Torah, they perceived God as an old man because you don't want a young whippersnapper handing you the law. Like you want someone who is wise and grounded and has life experience. So, um, so, the, um, so the Israelites perceived God differently at different times. Um, and I just want to say that um, this reminds me of a teaching that I received from one of my teachers, Rabbi Laura Geller, very early on, who she had a saying that says that um, theology is autobiographical. Theology is autobiographical, that often we perceive God, um, we describe God, we understand God based on our own experience, based on our own experience. And so it's very important to pay attention to our own experience because it um, opens up the possibilities for how we might um, connect with God. Okay, so, but Levi Yitzchak is going someplace different with this. So we, he, we know the saying that the Israelites ex experienced God in different ways. He says, but this is how we explain it. There are two ways that we can serve the blessed creator. Now, I just want to say again, you're going to see I'm going to interrupt myself a lot in going through this text. Um, Levi Yitzchak, this is very typical Levi Yitzchak. He says something, he's like, oh, that means there are two ways of doing something. And the two ways often seem mutually exclusive, but I just, well, this is like a spoiler alert. It's not so mutually exclusive. Um, we'll see how he brings them together. Okay, so there are these two ways to serve the blessed creator. One way to serve the blessed creator is to recognize God's great power and not even think about the goodness and kindnesses that the blessed name showers upon you. Then all the goodness and the pleasure are considered as nothing compared to the pleasure of serving the blessed creator. It's as if you are serving a great and powerful king who is served by many thousands of people. There is no measure to this glorious presence. This is called mochin de gadlut, big mind, when you are serving with mature spiritual intelligence. But when you are served the blessed creator in order to, reserve, to receive kindness and great abundance, this is called mochin de katnut, small mind, because you are serving the blessed creator with an immature spiritual intelligence. Okay, so let's stop there for a moment and unpack this a little bit. So um, for those of you who are familiar with the um, with spiritual language, particularly in the world of the of the Hasidic thinkers, um, this is a slightly different way of thinking about what mochin de gadlut and mochin de katnut are. So often we talk about mochin de katnut, like the, the gadlut, like this big expanded consciousness is when we are like really in a state of enormous dveikut or connection or interconnectedness with divinity. And we can see the biggest, biggest picture. It's this expanded consciousness. It's this wide open where we move beyond ourselves. And mochin de katnut, happens when we are stuck, when we're spiritually stuck, when we don't feel God's presence, when we're just sort of like stuck in our own smallness and, um, and we can't really, um, we can't get out of it. And I, well, I'll speak for myself. I have certainly experienced mochin de katnut, that small-mindedness, um, more often than I've experienced the expanded consciousness. But what Levi Yitzchak here is saying that, um, so first of all, he's saying that the 
Mohin de Godlut, this expansive mind, means that we're whatever it is that we're doing, we're doing just for God's sake, not for our own sake at all. And that that is a sign of spiritual maturity, of spiritual maturity. Whereas Mohin de Katnut, when we're just focusing on what am I going to get out of it? I'm thinking about my reward. Am I going to have an easy life? Am I going to have am I going to get rewarded? That that's a, a spiritual immaturity. Um, and that's Mohin de, um, de Katnut. So he goes on to say then, so at the time of the Exodus, the people saw the miracles and wonders that the blessed name performed for them in striking the Egyptians with the 10 plagues and the miracles of the sea. And they served the holy name with Mohin de Katnut, with this small mind. And that's why God appeared to them at the sea like a young man, reflecting their immature spiritual intelligence. But in giving them the Torah at Mount Sinai, their defiled state ceased and all earthly pleasures seemed insignificant compared with, to serving the blessed creator. Their devotion to the blessed creator was recognizing God's great power, which is Mohin de Gadlut, which is mature spiritual intelligence. So this is why God appeared to them as an old man at the giving of the Torah as a sign of spiritual maturity. So it wasn't about that they needed a young man warrior fighter or a wise old lawgiver, that it was a reflection of their own inner state, the way that they saw God, of their own motivation for what they were doing in the world. So, um, so I'd like to stop for a moment and think about what does it mean to serve God? What does it mean to serve God? Because Levi Yitzchak is doing this whole thing in the context of like, what does it mean to serve God? So I would like, you know, it sounds like very holy. It sounds like something rabbis do or, you know, very pious people do. Like, well, what does it mean to serve God? And I want to say that for Levi Yitzchak, as well as other early Hasidic masters, that um, serving God was not limited to mitzvot. They were very connected to this idea of avodah begashmiut, of serving God in every single way in the material world through eating and drinking and working and interpersonal relationships, and that everything that we do is a, is um, if we have the right consciousness, if we have the right perspective, is in fact a way of serving God. So when we think about it that way. Are we doing the things that we're doing in our lives, everything, for our own sakes and for our own interest and our own benefit? Or are we, the things that we're doing, are we doing them for the sake of something bigger? Like, you know, the king that's served by the thousands of people. So, um, so it, it's, it, this is sort of inviting us into considering, like, why is it that we do what we do? Why is it that we do what we do? Are we, why is it that we feed our families, that we um, fight for justice, that we um, do the things that we do when they're the right thing to do? Are we doing them for the status or the, the money or the, um, the prestige or something else, something material that, that makes us bigger? Or are we doing it for like a more selfless, bigger reason that we're connecting with some vision of the way that the world can be for us and for all people. Um, 
So I'm actually going to take that out of a rhetorical question. I'm going to stop sharing my screen for a moment because I'd love to hear some of your responses to this. Like I'm wondering, um, my sense is that most of the time our motivation, even for the noble things that we do, is probably a little mixed. Like some of it is for our own sake and some of it is for something bigger. And my question is, um, how do we really know what our core made motivation actually is? Yeah, Diana. Um, so I think we aspire on a really basic level to leave the world better than we came. Yeah. To give more than we take. And you mentioned the five Jewish qualities of joy, gratitude, courage, connection, and trust. Yeah. And those practicing as much as we can, those qualities are a vehicle for um, remembering mm -hmm. um, something outside ourselves. Yeah. Um, and sort of others in the connection and the aspiration to, as I said, to give more than we take. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I think the, the actions that we do is spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. um, whether we think of it as spiritual, you know, spiritual practice, just like the early Hasid said, doesn't have to just be prayer and Torah study, although those help. Mm. Right? But everything that we do can be towards that larger good, that world that we yearn for. Mm. Yeah. Anybody else? I, I, I think that, I mean, this is a little bit intense, but um, in, in, in a moment of prayer, speaking out why am I doing something, um, there's a total nakedness and vulnerability in, in a prayer experience where in, a, in another setting, we can deceive ourselves or we can socially deceive others as to what we're doing or why, but in a moment of vulnerability of prayer, um, it's impossible. So to say like, why am I doing this work and to allow oneself to really stand there with the, with the, um, uh, with the reality. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And I think when we do that, Shmuley, it's, it's um, it, um, you know, really evoking this sense of God's presence. And when we're really evoking that, when we're opening our eyes to that presence, that's, you know, that's always there, but that we're, it's just not in our consciousness. You know, then we're in that place of mochin de gadlut, of that expansive consciousness, which makes it, um, you know, might give us a clearer mirror into, so why, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for my own glory? Because I hope that good things will come back to me. Or am I doing this because this is how I feel called in the world? Yeah, Esther, make sure you unmute yourself. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I think they're so hard to separate okay. in, some, in some way. I mean, at the extremes, they're easy to separate, but you know, how do you separate? You're doing something because you want to do good. It makes you feel like you're doing the right thing. Um, so 
you're getting something out of it in that way. I mean, I, it seems like it's a, very hard to, to slice them away completely from each other. I agree with you. I find, I think it's actually really difficult often to, to, you know, to figure out like, because often doing things for the greater good also makes me feel good. So, um, so then am I doing it for my own sake or am I doing it for something else? So, um, but I think what Levi Yitzchak is, is, um, is, is uh, inviting us into is this idea that um, when we have those moments of real spiritual maturity, as the Israelites had at the um, at Mount Sinai, that we had they we have greater insight into maybe the, the the purity of our motivation, where we can really look and say, oh yeah, this is why I'm doing it. It might not even be the easiest thing for me to do, but it doesn't matter. Like I'm, I need to do this because this is what needs to be done. Okay, so let's go back to Levi Yitzchak. Um, and because I think so far what we've been doing is really sort of defining the terms of Mochin de Gadlut. What is that, that expanded consciousness? And the Mochin de Katnut, like what is that, what is the, the smaller consciousness? Um, and so now we're gonna move more directly to our theme um, which is courage. So um, let's go to that. Okay, so here's Levi Yitzchak's claim. When you serve the blessed name with Mochin de Gadlut, with that expanded consciousness, you do not experience dread or fear from anything that might happen to you even if it seems like something terrible. But in your thoughts and your heart, it doesn't appear to be terrible because your heart is steady and trusting that no harm will come to you, even if from the outside, it seems terrible. But if you serve the blessed name with Mochin de Katnut, that's for the sake of a reward, when one of the things that can happen does happen to you, great fear can descend upon you even in your thoughts, you can be paralyzed by your fear. And in this way, negative forces can gain power over you. So, um, so I wanna ask you to check that out with your own experience, that um, when we are, um, when we're acting out of our own self-interest, when something gets, goes wrong, um, do we get shaken? And when we're doing something for like the sake of something much bigger um, and something goes wrong, do we experience less fear? Do we feel more courageous? So I'm gonna stop sharing the, um, the screen for that and hear what your experience is. Diana, do you wanna jump in? Oh, so I'm thinking about when we do things that are um, contrary to what, let's say, society is doing, mm -hmm. and it can be really scary to step outside the norm mm -hmm. and do something different and challenge accepted norms. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it because you're trying to serve some greater good, mm -hmm. 
then you can feel more courageous because mm -hmm. I mean, after all, like we're compassionate beings who want to reduce suffering that we see in the world, but we're also social beings who want to fit in right. and be accepted and be loved and belong. And sometimes when you do something where you're following your heart um, out of compassion, you can, you can be stepping outside the norm. You can be stepping away from tradition. You can be doing things differently than your family is doing it and your friends are doing it. And that's really scary, but you have the courage when it's coming from your internal sense of knowing right. and the sense of wanting to reduce suffering and help the greater good. Does that yeah. speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's exactly what he's, what he's pointing to here. You know, I think about um, um, like nonviolent protests, for example, where people put themselves like directly in harm's way um, mm. because they are working for a greater good, right? They yeah. have that clear sense that this is in alignment with this bigger thing that's happening that needs to happen. Like that is, I think, a place of, um, of great mohin de gadlut, of that expanded consciousness in ways that, um, that enabled them to have the courage that even at great personal risk, you know, when the things that might happen out in the world might happen to them, it doesn't deter them. They have the sense of, no, I'm doing this because it aligns so directly with what I'm trying to do in the world. Yeah. Tenement Square is a, I, comes to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. The man standing in front of the tank. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Is that Michael? Yeah. Yeah. I also think this relates to our quest to figure out our place in the world where we are here so briefly. And does it have any meaning beyond our immediate interaction, knowing that, that you know, 100 years from now, versus us part of a larger context? Beautiful. I love that. Because then the, the largerness takes us out of like this little moment in time and puts us in this chain of tradition where we do our own little or chain of, of work, where we do our own little part of it, but the, the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, so we might lose the battle, but you know, the war is still to be won. It's a violent metaphor, I don't wanna use that one, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's also relates to the significance of what we do for how it affects us. How, versus how does it affect the larger community, the family beyond us, and, and what context of the small inner versus the larger? Yes, 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 thank you. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else have a thought about this? Um, I wanna go back to, um, to a moment to uh, the experience of becoming a foster parent. And this is sort of like a small example of this. Um, I remember when, um, when we first decided to become foster parents, a lot of people told us, you know, you're, you're courting heartbreak. You know, this is gonna be really difficult. And, you know, these kids have a lot of problems often and like 
you, you know, heard a lot of hard, sad, tragic stories and like, you know, why are you putting yourself into that? Um, but it actually, like I heard the stories and I listened carefully and I certainly thought, you know, we're, that's just as likely to happen to us as not. But, um, but I didn't feel scared of it because I had this sense of no, but this is something that we can do. We have the home, we have the emotional bandwidth, we have the emotional maturity, we can, like, we can, we can do this. And that that bigger thing gave us the courage to step forward and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this kid in, into our home. And, um, and what a blessing. But even if it hadn't been a blessing, it's still what we, I think that sense of um, courage comes from knowing that this is truly, um, Diana, as you said, it's a little bit outside the norm, but it's truly the right thing to do. Rabbi Lisa? Yeah, Cheryl. I just, I just had a memory of something many, many years ago. I had a teaching from Rabbi Abraham Torsky. Of all things, he was teaching about lobsters. I don't know if you're <laughs> with that, which you wouldn't think would be his thing. But he was talking about how you can learn from the lobster when the lobster feels discomfort because his shell is getting too small. That means that he's growing, that it's a positive thing, that we have to get out of our comfort zones. Mm -hmm. And it takes courage. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do and we feel so much better for having done that. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. I think there's an Anais Nin quote that's sort of similar that the, the pain of staying in the bud was worse than the pain of breaking open into blossom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if that can align with our um, our sense of, of serving this bigger reality, then, um, then that's a very deep source of, of courage. So um, Rabbi Lisa, when yeah. you were talking about your decision to foster mm -hmm. and you said you had the emotional bandwidth, you had the home, I was thinking many people do, but there's something different going on besides that. So I think in addition, you it aligned with your sense of of a higher purpose yes that's the, exactly like, was the missing ingredient exactly exactly that's that right gave you the courage beyond just the the home and the yeah emotional support right right exactly that for for us one way of of, of really serving god of that sense of being aligned with the way that we want to be in the world um, is to um, was to take in a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say one other thing that um, the, you know, when we initially thought that we were going to do this, we thought about little kids. And then we were approached by our rabbi who said, we know of a 17 year old who um, needs to, um, is in a bad situation. And um, if he doesn't find a good home, um, he won't finish high school, you know, would you consider him? And I had been pretty clear, I did not want a teenager. <laughs> but that's not what we got. We got a teenager. And 
you know, he's now 20. He's been with us almost three years. So it's been quite a blessing. So it's not always like what you think you're being called to is not always then, you know, if you're, if you're really doing this in alignment, um, you can't always predict what it's going to be. Now, I also want to say that this sounds like I'm realizing this sounds very self-serving and that's not what I meant at all. And I want to take us to um, the last part of this, um, of this teaching, which is um, focusing in on um, King David. So King David, right, is the metaphor for the absolute, um, you know, for the, for the hero. He can do no wrong. He's really wonderful. Um, and we're going to see exactly... Um, and, and this is a one part that then brings us into Hanukkah, because what um, Levi Yitzchak is doing, he's going to start commenting on Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is one of like the major psalm for Hallel, right? And, and Hanukkah is one of the times that we recite Hallel. And um, one of the things that Levi Yitzchak is noticing is that verses 10 and 11 of Hallel are very strange. So even if you don't know any Hebrew, I'm going to read the I'm going to read the Hebrew out loud to you so that you can hear them, and you'll notice that it's very repetitive. So this is verses 11, um, 10 and 11 of Psalm 118. Kol goyim svavuni b'shem Hashem ki amilam, amilam. Sabuni v'gam svavuni b'shem Hashem ki amilam. So it sounds like the same thing twice, and. Um, and in fact, that's what Levi Yitzchak is noticing, and he does something very cool with this. So I'm going to share the, the um, passage with you. Okay, and we'll scroll down here. Okay, so this is what King David, peace be upon him, meant in the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118. All the nations surround me, in the name of God, I will overcome them. They beset me and also surround me. In the name of God, I will overcome them. Now this is Levi Yitzhak. Why is this doubled? And what does also mean in the second phrase? He said, they also surround me. So what does that also mean? Well, we can understand this nicely. When King David said all the nations, what he meant is all the bad things that might happen to me. So all the nations surround me means that they only surround me on the outside, but in my thoughts, I have no dread or fear because of this, because my heart is steady and trusts that the holy name will rid me of them and will rescue me from whatever happens. So this is the meaning of, in the name of God, I will overcome them. So here, and he's, Levi Yitzchak is about to comment on this, King David is serving, of course, from a place of Mohin de Gadlut, from that larger place where he's not afraid. So King David always served the blessed name with Mohin de Gadlut. Now, this is my very favorite part. But sometimes he would fall from his high spiritual level and serve the holy name with Mohin de Katnut so that when something happened to him, great fear also descended upon him. This is the meaning of they beset me. Sometimes things happen to me. The nations also surround me. They really surround me because I have fallen from my high spiritual level and I feel surrounded even in my thoughts. Such dread and fear have descended upon me. Still, 
In the name of God, I will overcome them. I will trust in that supernal kindness that God will remove all that threatens me and bring me out from trouble, which is Sara, to satisfaction, which is Ratsa. So he does a little anagram there where he just like switches the letters around to say like through that, that capacity to come back into that place of expanded consciousness, greater courage, that that's how we will overcome um, our fear and get out of trouble and into a place of truly pleasing God. So I'm going to stop sharing again. And just say that, um, you know, one of the things that that King David is teaching us here, which I think is so powerful, is that um, even King David couldn't keep it together all the time. That he also, even though he always served God with expanded consciousness, there were times when he couldn't. And I think that um, that's important for two reasons. One is that when we are feeling afraid, when we are feeling anxious, when we are feeling like knocked over by our, by all the things happening in the world. And we think, well, I should be, you know, I'm trying to be a spiritual person. I should be fine. And we're not, but that's okay. That that's okay. That that's just, that's the way that it is. Even King David felt that sometimes. And the other thing that I think is so important about this is that just because we have like fallen from that spiritual level, doesn't mean that we can't go back to it because that's what David did, right? He was beset and surrounded. And yet when he can come back and reground himself and recommit to what his core motivation is, then he can come back into that place of greater spiritual maturity and, um, and do what he needs to do. So that it's not a linear process at all. It has its ups and downs. It's going down in order to go up and the coming near and drawing back. And, and that's just the way that it is. And we might wish that it were different, but we, it's certainly not our fault when it's not that way. So, um, so I think what I, so I think there are three big takeaways from this text. So one is that when we're really looking to cultivate courage, one of the things that we might do is ask ourselves, what are we serving? What are we serving? What is the higher thing that anchors us, that gives us connection? So that's one. When we start, when we want to cultivate courage to just notice what, what are we serving? It's for the sake of what? And then the second thing is to recognize that sometimes you will not be able to maintain that level because you're a human being and King David couldn't do it and we're not going to be able to do it either. And that that's okay. That's, that's okay. It's not a sin that we can bring compassion to ourselves and the times when we do feel afraid and we don't feel like we are in a place of courage. And then the third thing that I think is really important from this text is that we can always come back to it. And that that dichotomy that either the expanded consciousness or the small consciousness, um, those are the two ways of serving God, that it's actually, it's more a question of when is what. They're both possible. And we can always, once we've, um, once we've fallen away, we can always, always come back 
we can always do teshuva. Teshuva is always possible. And, and in that place of coming back, um, recommit, rededicate ourselves as the holiday of Hanukkah is about to really rededicate ourselves um, to um, trying to reconnect to why we are serving. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and your responses to this teaching. Um, what do you like about it? Where do you want to push back at it? Um, what surprises you about it? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And um, Esther turned, uh, uh, yeah, there you go. So um, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, uh, having the, the courage to um, be a foster parent and how people would say, oh, that's so difficult. And um, I, I've never been a foster parent, but I did work with um, college students who had severe disabilities in various different ways. And people would always say, oh, that must be so depressing. And, um, you know, I, when, you're, when you're in that situation, it's really not. You're just um, actually inspired when people, when they're able to do what they do, considering um, what difficulties they have and yeah. how proud they are and excited they are. And it, it really is very inspiring. Um, so, you know, I think both sides feed each other when you're doing something um, that's difficult. It also makes your life easier or mm -hmm. uh, inspired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what you're also pointing to, you know, these five qualities are also like very interconnected, I find. The more I work with them, the more interconnected I find. And what you're talking about is this also is the sense of joy from seeing other people, um, like, like other people's uh, thriving. And, and, um, and, that, um, and that's a wonderful thing to witness. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with um, I mean, it has something to do with the work that you do, but just to see somebody thriving um, is really, a, it can be a deep source of joy, which then I think also helps us have that bigger perspective, that mochin de gadlut, that greater consciousness, so that it's not just about us, it's about, um, you know, serving the goodness that is in the world. Beautiful, thank you. Yeah, Diana? Are there times that we perform acts of mitzvot where we're doing it um, selfishly? Um, so I'm trying to yeah. parse it out mm -hmm. a little. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, um, you know, I have friends, for example, who are... Um, you know, who say that, or they've been taught that you shouldn't be looking for the reasons behind various mitzvot to find meaning in it because it's irrelevant whether there's meaning in it or not, like you just have to do it. And that if you are looking for the meaning in it, then um, you're doing it for your own sake. 
like to find satisfaction and meaning in it as opposed to just doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't personally subscribe to that, um, that philosophy, although I understand why people might think that. Um, and I definitely think there are things that we, um, you know, that we, that we could do, um, you know, sometimes, you know, think about Sadaka and the way that people give Sadaka and what is their motivation for giving Sadaka. Yeah. yeah. That just occurred to me. Right. Yeah. Right. And I would also say that, you know, um, they're, they're, uh, um, like our culture, uh, encourages us to do things for our own interest. Um, yes, yes. Can I, can I add two things on that, on this particular please, point? Please, please, please. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, in theology, if we think about monism versus dualism, but right, in, in dualism, we have all these, um, separations. There's self and God, there's body and soul. And in monism, there's just oneness. And, um, and what exactly is self-interest and other interests? And those can be like opposite ends of a spectrum, or we can kind of problematize, if you will, like where does self begin and where does other, um, when, when does self end and when does other begin? Um, so, th so that's kind of one thing I'm thinking there. And the other thing I was thinking about is, <clears throat> I believe it was Aristotle who made the point um, that um, uh, feeling good about doing good is itself virtuous. We might feel like, oh, this is selfish. I'm doing good because it makes me feel good. But actually like something would be wrong in moral psychology if doing good made us feel bad, okay. right? The fact that I, I help someone and I feel good about that is an additional layer of, of, of goodness, we might say, right? Yes. Yes, yeah, and I think that what you're pointing to, Shmuley, is um, really important for in two things. Number one is I think that there's there's no doubt that feeling good about doing good things, well, maybe there is doubt, but I like that's a wonderful thing. What I think the text is pointing to mm -hmm. is um, how do we get the courage to do things that don't feel good but that are important to do. Yeah. Right, like that's that's where we get thrown off because if we're only doing it for our self-interest, then when it no longer becomes our self-interest, we might say, mm, never mind. Right. But yeah. if we have a clear sense of no, like this might be unpleasant, this might be um, dangerous, even, but it has to be done for the sake of this bigger thing. That's where we derive our courage. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the challenge what we've been through, you know, since March, and we, what we've been through the last four years, where the whole concept of, of morality and things like that have been so challenged, yet we've been isolated and harder to fill a sense of community that has made this even more challenging than what yes. we're going through. Yes, 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 yes. Hi, Rabbi Lisa, quick question for you. Yes. Um, does Torah have anything that helps us regulate our intent versus our impact with our mitzvah? Um, say more about your question. I want to make sure I understand it. I want to know if there's anything or any commentary um, that talks about intent versus impact. So maybe our, our, our mitzvah is to help um, homeless folks. And mm -hmm. um, we ended up giving them a whole bunch of fast food. Mm -hmm. um, 
our intent was really good, um, but maybe our impact could have been better. Mm-hmm. Or if we try to help somebody and our intent is really good, but our impact is unfortunately not so great. Mm-hmm. So like the mitzvah itself is good, right? But how do we gauge uh, and better understand from uh, uh, from a place of, of, of Torah understanding and, and, and our, our roots, what does it look like to um, really see that, that gap close between our intent and impact? That's beautiful. I love that question. Um, and I would say that it's, you know, it's so complicated. You know, it's, it's, it's a, such a place of great discernment. And, um, you know, one of the things that, um, one of the metaphors that I might bring from the, um, one of the metaphors I might bring from the, um, the mystical world is the, um, this is gonna, it's gonna take a while for me to bring, bring it back, but here's sort of what I'm thinking, is the connection between um, kol, which is like the, um, which is the voice, which is the, like the yearning, which is the, like the, the pure sound and, um, and dibur, which is speech. And like to, when those, where the speech like puts the, the, the force of the intention of the, of the voice into packets where it can actually be communicated and actualized in the world. And what I think that that points to is that the desire for, um, for goodness in the world flows. Like it, it, in our, in our most centered self, like it, it just, it flows out, but we have to put it in those packets of actions or words that are, are discreet and are, um, and are never adequate. <laughs> you know, it's part of the tragedy, I think, of being human is that we are living in this very, very um, limited form. You know, as Michael said, like, even like we are, we're we're this these finite creatures that have such a short lifespan and so many of our deeds have have great intentions and are woefully inadequate and so i think the the um the challenge is how do we continually bring awareness to that alignment what are the practices we can do to to really keep asking the question that you're asking how is my intention taking its form in the actions that I'm doing? How are the actions that I'm doing um, filled to the brim with the good intention that is in me and is in every person? Thank you so much. Thank you. So the last thing that I would just say is I think that there's an aspect of this also in Hanukkah, right? Because when in Hanukkah, we're lighting, like it's the darkest time of the year, right? It's, it's the time of both in the solar calendar and in the lunar calendar, the darkness is at its greatest. I think, you know, there's, I'm not the first person to say that. That's a pretty common way of thinking about it. And what are we doing? We're kindling light. But the light that we're kindling is actually very small. You know, like these candles that burn for no more than an hour and um, we're not even supposed to use those candles, right? They're just supposed to burn. 
And they certainly do not banish the darkness. They are not for our own benefit. But we're kindling light for the sake of more light. And that's a way of saying that we're working towards that bigger picture as a way of increasing our courage, our sense of what is our motivation in kindling that light and just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. Um, each night, one more candle to bring more and more and more light, um, even if it doesn't last the night, it doesn't last the hour, but still that, um, it's a way of cultivating that both the real sense of um, why am I doing what I'm doing and of greater courage to keep, uh, keep kindling light when Hanukkah is over and as the days start to get longer. So, um, so I really want to bless all of you with a Hanukkah of light and maybe the opportunity to sit by the candles a little bit and reflect on what are we serving and for the sake of what, and what is the source of our courage? Because um, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do in our communities. We have a lot of work to do in our own hearts. We have a lot of work to do in our country and um, to be able to do it with as much compassion and courage as we can. Um, that's the task ahead, it seems amen, to me. Amen, so beautiful. Friends, it's really a gift because if you look back at the Midot, at the, at the uh, classical Jewish character traits, courage is not one of the um, main ones you're going to come across um, in, the, in, the, in the classical list. And to, to be able to reflect on Hanukkah and resiliency and courage and think with nuance psychologically, how do I cultivate this important trait? Whether we have to leave a toxic relationship, we have to enter a hard job, we have to conquer something psychologically or spiritually. It requires courage and it requires a lot of reflection on uh, that internal process. And so what a gift we've been given to, to be able to reflect on Hanukkah, not only as a story of peoplehood and a historical narrative, but as a personal spiritual journey for how we can grow in conquering battles that we, that we face in our own lives. And so I'm very grateful to Rabbi Goldstein. I'm very grateful to all of you who joined us. As usual, Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock, I will be giving my Shabbat 39 Ways to Repair the World class. Next Monday, we'll be learning with Rabbi Avi Weiss, Imeshka Cheikh Yerushalayim, if I forget, Jerusalem, an analysis also related to Hanukkah. And then we'll come back to Musar, Musar with Rabbi Stephen Exler. As long as, one, as long as the candle burns, repair is possible. Rabbi Israel, Yisrael Salantra, the Musar movement. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Yes, Esther. Oh, hold on, you're on mute, you're on mute. Yes, I just wanted to say one thing that I appreciated when we were talking about all of this with King da um, related to King David is especially in times like this that you you have times when you're it's more easy to give and less easy to give and that it's okay um, to yeah. to waver you can't always be at that level uh, just be kind to yourself. <laughs> Amen. Yes, exactly, Esther. Exactly. Yes, wow. so important. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you everybody. It was a delight to be with you all. Let's Thanks all be so much. With each other and ourselves. Have a great day. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.